Schoolers will be going up the mountain uh, tomorrow, so keep those prayers coming. Uh, we could definitely use it. And we are very thankful for you guys. How are you guys doing? It's good to see you. Doing better now. Thanks. It's Thanks. really good to see you guys. Um, no, I wanted to come up and just interrupt these guys to share a little bit of affirmation as a church, how thankful we are for you guys' leadership, because I know you guys, you sacrifice a lot. But not just you. Here's the big thing. There's a hundred adult leaders that are part of our middle school and high school ministry that sacrifice their time, and we're thankful for them. So so knowing um, what they do, we believe uh, middle school, high school ministry is not just the, it's not the future of the church, it's the church of now. And so we want to continue to sow just great seed, and you guys create such great environments for our students to come to know Christ, and then to grow in relationship, make a place where they can invite their friends. So thank you guys for all that you do. So you can, yeah. That's, that's it. If you want, unless you want them to oh. keep clapping, you guys can keep clapping. They, they can clap us off stage. Yes, yeah, there you okay. go. Yeah. See you later. Bye. See you guys Bye, later. everybody. Thanks. Now, I was privileged to be able to swing by camp uh, earlier this week and then getting to go up this week. Um, just knowing as a, as a retired youth pastor, it just warms my heart to be able to see the, the heart and uh, the passion for Christ that's shared through those two awesome leaders and the teams that they placed around them. Um, I get to announce and introduce our speaker to you guys, uh, Josh Adams. And so uh, Josh is from Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Uh, this is Josh Quincy Adams. Okay. Um, his middle name is not actually Quincy, but it sounds good, and it makes him a local there in Boston. And so um, we're very thankful for Josh. Many of you know we partnered with Harbor Church for almost three years now. Um, as a church, we set aside 13% of our finances that goes towards outreach, and this is one of our strategic uh, partners. We believe in the uh, work that actually that God can do more than Josh can do. And so um, That's good. That's good. We, you know, he was, he called us and said, Hey, Keith, you know, Hey, can we steal your name? I'm like, sure. So we're Rock Harbor. He's not really founded on the rock, but they're Harbor. And then he's like, then later he's like, Hey, Keith, we need more money. And so if it wasn't for us, like his family wouldn't eat or anything um, like that. That's pretty true. Um, but then. Also, you know, we've been praying and just preparing to, to build a building, and they're probably going to be in a building before us. So that's just great, too. Um, Want to celebrate. You're not bitter, are you? I'm not bitter. Just celebrate God's work in your life. Um, but I've known Josh for 15 years, and the relationship we've been able to have, he was one of my brother's best friends in college, and I won't mention most of those stories because it's inappropriate for church. Um, but God has got a hold of his life, and um, since then we've been able to just partner. And When we were in student ministry together, we sent a team of 12 out uh, that went to serve on the Cape with them. The weather came in, and planes were canceled, and that mission trip turned into half a month. And so they really enjoyed that experience they had with you. we got to do that again, man. Yeah, that, that was, was great. Right. So being able to partner from the very beginning before Harbor existed and then to be part of it now, it's an honor. They are blessed with a great, uh, just man of God, a wonderful family that leads, leads people there. And so uh, this is the beginning of our uh, relationship together. And you've sown into our students through camps. And uh, we're really grateful that you're going to share with Rock Harbor today. So love you, man. Thanks, bro. Love you too, man. Thank you. What he failed to mention is these last 15 years, I've been writing most of his messages. Um, <laughs> at least the good ones. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I mean, I'm so glad to be here, Rock Harbor. Man, I'm, I have had so much fun hanging out with uh, yeah, your students, and, and camp was, was literally just one of the most fun I've ever had. Now, normally I come and I ask churches for prayer, but I spent a week with your kids. I'll be praying for some of the parents in this room. 
I know what you're dealing with now. Um, but it was, it was, it was awesome. It really was. And this has been uh, a trip that I've been looking forward to for a long time. As a church planner, you got to go to a lot of your churches and, um, you know, part of the, the, the way it works is you, you're blessed to have churches that pour into you. And I'm thankful for every church that's come alongside Harbor Church, but, um, Rock Harbor holds a special place in my heart. And I, I don't want to get emotional on you cause I got to preach, but, um, this has been a long time coming and I am so blessed by Rock Harbor and uh, by your staff. I've, I, I've gotten to know most of the staff here. There's some awesome people and uh, really poured into uh, me. And I have stolen a lot of, uh, borrowed a lot of Rock Harbor's uh, just DNA for Harbor Church. Like our core values are, are modeled after yours. I go back. Every time I come and visit, I go back and I'm like, we got to try this. We got to try that. And I'm like, you guys got to see what Rock Harbor does. They open doors for people. And my people, it's New England. They're like, they're friendly from the beginning. And I'm like, that's it's new, you know, and like, I'm trying to teach them. You got to understand if you, in New England, we don't waste time waving to people we don't know. <laughs> like you guys are like driving around like, ah, if we wave in New England, it's usually sign language for your number one. And, um, so that's a little bit different, but being, uh, just, uh, our church has been so impacted by Rock Harbor and me personally, um, Scott Harrop, uh, who is, uh, one of your pastors here, he, uh, he poured into me when I was a college kid and was heading down the wrong path. And I don't think without him, uh, just having some hard conversations with me, I don't think I'd be in ministry today. And, uh, your pastor, pastor Keith, um, he came alongside me when nobody else would. And he said, we want to be a part of planning a church. And, uh, when you're new and have zero credibility, everybody kind of pushes back and says, prove yourself. And then maybe we'll invest and he said, man, we're with you from the beginning. And Rock Harbor has poured in. And there are people who now, I mean, entire families that have come to know Christ. And it goes to the credit of Rock Harbor. You guys have invested in us, um, sacrificially given, faithfully given. And uh, everything that we have goes to your credit. And I can't thank you enough. I think every church we go to, but Rock Harbor, is, I mean, is at the top. And you guys have poured into us. And you'll never know. I'll probably never really understand this side of eternity, how blessed we are to have you. But uh, I hope you guys know that there is some stuff going on. And uh, before I get into the message, I want to share with you a little bit about our church. For those of you that may not know me or may not remember me, the last time I was here, um, I came with my wife and our little daughter, and our family has grown since then. We now have added a little boy. So we have Annabelle and Luke is our newest one, because, you know, we thought, hey, man, we're planting a church. Why don't we jump into a building campaign and have a baby at the same time? Um, we got we got spare time. That's a good idea. Um, and, but no, we we really are blessed. Uh, the kids take after their mom, so they're they're kind of rough. Uh, but uh, my wife is a local. I did not grow up on Cape Cod. I was a missionary kid, but um, I've been there for twelve years. But I married a local girl. And see, the way it works in New England is you have to be able to trace your roots back. So, like on the scale of like where you are, she's a local. A native is somebody who has at least six generations worth of their family there. Like if you can't, if your family didn't get off the Mayflower, then you're just visiting. Um, <laughs> stupid, but whatever. Um, so those are like natives, and you have locals, or like like my wife, and then um, like way down at the bottom is like all the people that come in during the weekend to like like be on our beaches, the tourists. We call them seagulls because they're like mine, 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 and they poop everywhere, and then they leave. Um, 
And then above them is the tourists. They're the people that like have a home, but they're only there for like a week or two a year. Uh, we hate them because they're really rich. Um, but then there's those of us that have to stick around the island the year round. Now, I wasn't born there, but I've been there for 12 years. So I've got the status of wash ashore. And that's a title they give to people. It's the equivalent of driftwood. So, um, but I'm there. I'm like, I'm, I'm working my way to being local. I'll never be a local, but um, at least I, I, can, I can hang to, with it a little bit. Our church... Uh, we uh, we planned Harbor Church almost two years ago on uh, an, uh, an island that looks like an arm sticking into the ocean. If you saw a silhouette of Massachusetts, there's an arm just south of Boston that reaches out into the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, we planted Harbor Church. We called it Harbor because there's 117 harbors on Massachusetts because we actually touched the ocean. I don't know where he went. He busted my chops about stealing that name. We actually have a harbor. Um, <laughs> A lot of them. And um, we planted our church right in the middle. If you look at the arm, we planted our church right here in a town called Hyannis, which is right in the center of Cape Cod. And if you're looking at that map and you're like, Josh, your arm is a lot bigger than that arm. I can't help how God's blessed me. Just follow with the, the, the illustration here. Right here in the center allows us to plant more churches to reach the rest of the Cape. But Hyannis is, is an epicenter. It's the biggest city on Cape Cod. It, um, it's where all the infrastructure for the city come, or for the whole Cape comes down to there. It's like the only, um, the only mall is there. The only Home Depot is there. The, the only chain restaurants, short of Dunkin' Donuts, there's no other chain restaurants on the Cape except for in Hyannis. So like we've got the, um, you know, the only Olive Garden, the only Chick-fil-A, the only Taco Bell. I mean, if those aren't reasons to plant a church there, I don't know what is. And, um, that, that, that's the center for like all the activity. And that's where we plant our church so we can plant more churches around the Cape. If uh, you don't really get the Cape culture, you might, maybe you've seen like postcards or heard people talk about it. Cape Cod is known as like the tourist destination. It's the vacation getaway for a lot of the Northeast. If they can't get to Florida, they're going to come to Cape Cod. We're known like that's where the the Kennedys have their compound. Hyannis is actually where, Hyannis Port is where the Kennedys live as well as on Martha's Vineyard. When I showed you that arm, Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket weren't on there, but they're just south of the island. And and we know we're known for our food, a lot of great seafood, Um, you know, lobsters or as a local would say, lobster and, uh, you know, clam chowder and stuff like that and fish and chips and um, whales and sharks. That's where they film Jaws, lighthouses, all that stuff. Um, it's a great place to live. It's gorgeous. Um, I lived there for almost 10 years before I really saw some of the uh, underbelly of Cape Cod. I wasn't even familiar with a lot of the darkness that was on my own island. Um, we are about 330,000 people year round. So those are the blue collar workers that, that you know, the, the gardeners and the mechanics and the people that uh, can't afford to leave Cape Cod during the winter. So we live there year round. Now, if you were to visit Cape Cod today, any day during the summer, there's about a million people on the island because there's so many tourists there, but 330,000 year-rounders. And um, it, is, it is one of the most spiritually dark places in, in, in our entire country. Now, I put this, uh, this little thing out here. It says New England because old England was wicked stupid. Um, it, the, the pilgrims moved, obviously, for religious reasons. But, uh, by the way, wicked is something that we say in New England just to mean very, 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 very. So uh, it's wicked cold. I'm wicked smart. You're wicked stupid, that kind of thing. That's not personally, but you get the thing. Um, but new, the actual England itself 
has been going through a revival. And some of my missionary friends over there have been praying for revival. And over the last 20 years, they have raised the spiritual temperature from 4% up to 7% of the people in the United Kingdom claim to know and follow Jesus. That is exciting and awesome. Here's the contrast. New England in the United States averages 3%. So there are countries outside of America that follow Christ more than some of the, some of the regions in our own country. New England is made up of Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. And all six of those states are almost always the top six least evangelical, least likely to follow Christ. Massachusetts is almost always number one. We go back and forth occasionally with Maine and New Hampshire, but Massachusetts is almost always number one for the least evangelized state in America. Um, by the, the percentages for my state is about 2.4% of the people would say they know and follow Jesus Christ. In contrast, Idaho is ranked 19th, and it's about 33% of the people would claim salvation through faith in Jesus alone. Um, So that's an amazing mission field you guys have. If you run into three people, two of them don't know that, don't have an eternity in heaven. If I run into a hundred of them though, 98 of them probably don't. If you, if you think about ni- the 98 people you know the most, that's your family, your coworkers, you know, your friends from school. If you don't know a Christian, you can live your entire life in America and never hear the gospel. Um, we planted a church right in the middle of that. Out of 330,000 people, um, that's roughly about the size of Boise and Meridian put together, or maybe a little bit smaller than what those two cities would be together. But out of all of those, I could, I could count generously using the term gospel preaching, very generously using that term. Uh, I counted 28 churches. That's 12,000 people for every one gospel preaching church. And the average church size is about 20 or 30 people. So we have been there for a year and a half and we're actually already probably the fourth or fifth largest church on the Cape. And uh, that's just because it's not prevalent. It's not a ton of gospel. We need more churches coming and and being planted there. And uh, I I don't want you to hear all doom and gloom. God has blessed the last year and a half. We have uh, been able to hold services in the basement of a church that's there on the Cape that couldn't afford to keep uh, all of that going. So they said, hey, would you rent um, our our space from us? And we were thrilled to have that. And man, God has blessed that. And so we're in their basement. It's not very big. Um, and so we've moved to two services now, uh, averaging 150 people has been, uh, just phenomenal growth. Most of the churches we knew, it took them 10 years to break a hundred. And I think we broke a hundred in the, in the first eight or nine months. And man, we just felt like God was, was using us. We were able to purchase a building. And although we were, we, we thought we'd get right into that building. I live in Massachusetts. It's the most bureaucratic state in the country. And so red tape is like, like what they do for fun. Um, and, uh, it's going to take a while for me to get, get, uh, get that building done. You guys may have to break ground, build your building and get in it before I can finish mine. Um, but, uh, I, I do believe God's going to use that new space to just, just tear open all kinds of access to people that don't currently get access to the gospel. We are seeing people get saved and baptizing people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s that are telling us, man, I never heard or understood the story of Jesus. When you think about New England, you think all oh, these people are anti-God and they're all negative. They just don't know God. They're not rejecting him. They're not, they're not aware of him. Not at the level that you might, you might be accustomed to. So it, New England, although 
New England like sent out the gospel 200 years ago. All the revivalists, all the big preachers came out of New England. When they headed west with these revivals, there was a big void that was left in this and I really believe Satan reached in and just has had a stranglehold of darkness on New England for well over a hundred years now. So pray with us and, and please have more mission trips come out and, and, and be a part of that and, and, and lift us up. But know that everybody we're reaching is because of your investment in our church. Um, as Pastor Keith had, had told me about what Rock Harbor was looking to do and even your theme this year, um, just like, give me faith. Man, I began to pray through how I might be able to be an encouragement to you guys like you've been to, to Harbor Church. And, and one of the things that he showed me was, that God showed me as he called me to step out and plant a church was to have faith like Elijah, to have that Elijah-sized faith that, uh, that, that could really do, have some impact. And if you're not familiar with Elijah, he's most known for getting up on Mount Carmel. He's a prophet in Israel and his job was to point people to God. And he, he's most known in the Bible for getting up on Mount Carmel and praying to God, would you, God, would you just send down a lightning bolt to consume this, this altar? And he does it in front of a battle, like a face-off with like 800 false prophets, one versus all of them, and he wins, and his faith is awesome, and everybody knows him for that. But long before he ever gets to Mount Carmel, he has to be baby-stepped and walk through his faith journey. And that's something that God used to show me and to teach me, and I kind of want to share that with you. Now, my voice is struggling a little bit because they said, hey, come and, and, and do a week of camp and, you know, preach a bunch there. And I said, sure. And they said, hey, then do four services on Sunday. I said, sure, I got that. And they said, oh, by the way, we're going to take you from sea level, like up like a mile. So elevation's good. I go, oh, okay. They said, oh, we're going to dry the air out completely. And I said, oh. And then I get off the plane and you guys like started fires for me. So um, <laughs> it's, been, it's been awesome. So I'm going to have to drink quite a bit while we're doing this. But I, I, I think that God can show you something here real quick. If you'll let me in the life of Elijah, he gets called to kind of stand up to the, to the king of Israel. The king of Israel is named Ahab, and uh, he was supposed to be leading the people to God, but instead, Ahab doesn't marry a local girl. He actually goes outside of what God commanded. He married a Phoenician girl named Jezebel, and Jezebel was an evil, wicked queen who loved uh, Baal and Asherah and worshiped false gods, and she led the king and all of Israel into idolatry. And God was so angry and frustrated with him, he sends his prophet Elijah to tell them that he's, he's unhappy. And this is where we pick up the story in 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah's been told by God to go and, and, and talk with Ahab and, and Jezebel. And it says, Ahab, who, or, or sorry, Elijah, who was from Tishba and Gilead, told King Ahab, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, the God I serve. And that's not a non too subtle way of saying, bro, you're on the wrong side. Um, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. That may not mean a lot to you, but what Elijah just did is he pronounced a drought, a famine. When everybody is reliant on that for their crops and their livestock, he just pronounced a death sentence. Not just for a couple hundred, for thousands, maybe even a hundred thousand or more people were going to die from this drought that, that Elijah was proclaiming because of the sin of Ahab and Jezebel. And so uh, he does this tough thing. And often you and I are like, well, if I just do the tough thing, then I should be rewarded. And uh, that's not what we see here. Uh, it says in the very next verse, God told, the Lord told uh, Elijah, go to the east and hide by the Cherith brook uh, where it enters the Jordan River. Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you. For I've commanded them to bring you food. He does the right thing and he actually has to run for his life. He becomes an outlaw. He becomes a fugitive. They're trying to kill him. And so he has to go to this brook. And it says in verse five, Elijah did as the Lord told him and he camped beside the Cherith brook east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he drank from the brook. 
And if uh, you if you uh, grew up in Sunday school or uh, kids' church or something like that, you may have heard the story of Elijah and the ravens. I, I didn't get to grow up with like the technology that the kids have. I had flannelgraph, you know, to like watch. Anybody remember that? Yeah, a few heads shaking. You know, okay, okay I'm not the only old person. Um, the, the teacher like would like peel and stick them to like move them. And then like for the birds coming in, she would peel and stick, peel and stick. And I'm like, this is the greatest graphics I've ever seen. And, you know, I was captivated by the story of Elijah and the ravens. And then I think at the end, she just kind of put a plate that had like vegetables and potatoes and stuff like that on it. And I just kind of assumed that's what the ravens brought. And so like most of my life, I didn't stop to think about it. I just assumed the ravens were like flying in with like a pizza for Elijah or like they grabbed onto a steak and were dropping it off. And you would be like, Josh, how could they do that? Like, how could it even carry it? And I'd say, well, maybe if it grabbed it by the husks and maybe if it was an African swallow and... Okay, that was a Monty Python joke, but uh, never mind. Uh, moving on. I, I misunderstood what, what this verse was saying. And uh, as I looked into ravens, ravens are scavengers. They eat roadkill. They get any scraps of anything they can. They were not bringing him, you know, a, a five-course meal. They were dropping him off with scraps of meat. And, and the brook was not like this nice, nice, refreshing, cold glass of water. It's a muddy creek that he had to put his face in to get drinks. And if you're like, well, that must have just been for a couple of days. He's there for over three years eating bird scraps and drinking from muddy water. And I began to think about this as God called me to take a step and trust him. I began to have an attitude that said, God, how can you ask me to do something? I'm barely making it now. I am just scraping by. I'm scraping the barrel financially, emotionally. I can't lead my family to do this. We're barely making it. Don't ask me to give more. Don't ask me to trust more. Don't ask me to take a step into something that is already too scary. I don't know that I can make it. If you could just give me what they have, if you could just bless me the way you bless them, their family has this, or this guy has that kind of talent, or this church has this, or this. My situation is obviously different from yours, but it all comes down to us trusting God and our faith. And what we like to do is we like to look at what we've got and just belittle what God's given us. And what we do is we call that we call things scraps and they're actually God's provisions. What we are, what we are calling scraps is God reaching down saying, here, here's me blessing you, providing for you. My scraps are actually his provisions. I am praying for a Ferrari and God has given me a Ford and I'm complaining that I don't have what I thought I would have. We want to win the lottery and God's like, why don't you just learn to trust me with what you got? And we begin to push back as if though God's not good enough to us. God's not taking care of us. And he's sitting there going, hey, I told you I would meet all of your needs, not all of your wants. And when the people in God's church begin to realize he's not a genie where we just rub the lamp and make a wish of him. And instead we say, God, how can I trust you more? Maybe we begin to appreciate the things that we thought were just scraps that are actually growing our faith. Nobody? Okay. Okay. I'll just guess I'll move on then. Okay. Um, So we're going to have fun today. I'm going to step on your toes. Just get ready for it. Um, the, the passages that come from the, the brook and, and, and the, the birds feeding him and taking care of him, the next big story is him with a widow in Zarephath. And a lot of people know the miracle of the widow in the jar of oil. But between the brook and 
the jar of oil miracles. It's three verses. And God used them to show me something. If you read in your Bible, don't just assume a verse is there for space as filler. It's not. If a verse is there, look at it and say, why is it there? The very next verse says that while he was there, while Elijah was there, the brook dried up in verse number seven, that after a while, the brook dried up. And like I said, he was there for three years. Three years he's there and the brook dries up and there's no rainfall anywhere in the land is what verse number seven says. And so if you look at this, if you look at this verse, you would say, okay, well, well, let's move on. Have you ever been dependent on something for your life? Have you ever been dependent on something for your life and, and then watched it dry up? I mean, if a creek dries up, you know, it's flowing and it's flowing and then it slows down and then it trickles and then it's just puddles. And then those puddles turn to mud and I can see him digging in the mud to try to get just a little bit of moisture. And then the mud turns to dust. And I had to say, God, why would you dry that puddle up? And sometimes, this is what God showed me, is that sometimes he dries something up so that we learn to let go of it. Because what I was doing was I was going, God, why is this happening in my life? Why? I loved youth ministry and our youth ministry was going so well. And yet it felt like it was drying up. And God was teaching me, I can take something and dry it up so that I can move you on to something else. And then the spiritual giants in your life want to come up and be like, oh, I bet you that's sin. God's taking sin out of your life. No, no, that's not true. Who gave him the brook? Okay, guys, that's the easiest question I can ask. Hey, we just read it. Who sent him to the brook? Who created the brook? Okay, if God created it and God sent it to him, it wasn't a sin, all right? God wasn't drawing up sin. Now, that's not the caveat. Okay, if you're in here and you're sinning, like actively, there's not a mystery there. God doesn't want you to do that, okay? If you're robbing banks on the weekend, stop, okay? But there are times that there's things that aren't wrong that still get dried up that God begins to remove and take away from you. And you have to wonder, like, why would you do that? It's not to punish you. It's not to hurt you. It's to teach you to let go because he's got something else for you. But you and I, we cling on to that relationship. We double down on that job. We, we want to hold on to the thing that we think is taking care of us. And what we do is we end up worshiping the water that's keeping us alive instead of the creator of the water. And that's where God says, let go and trust me more. All right, guys, I'm preaching about 35% better than you're responding. Okay? When we learn to say, God, I'm going to trust you with this. He says, hey, I got something else for you. But what we do is we get so clingy because we can't envision God, it's a, it's a, it's a drought. This is the last thing I've got. And I don't know that Elijah would have walked away from a cold flowing water source. But when it dries up now, so he's like, okay, where are you moving me? And so sometimes instead of getting mad at God for drying something up, a relationship, a job, something in your heart, instead of getting mad at him, say, okay, God, I can trust that you've got something else for me. Now, what comes after verses seven and eight or verses seven is verses eight and nine. Verses eight and nine say that, that, that the Lord said to Elijah, go to, uh, go live in the village of Zarephath near the city of Sidon. I've instructed a widow there to feed you. Once again, <clears throat> excuse me, once again, you might look at that and be like, okay, just two verses. Let's move on to the widow story. It's there for a reason. The brook Cherith is about a hundred miles from Zarephath. God didn't just say, hey, take a stroll, you know, walk 10 feet. He called him on a hundred mile journey. After three years of drought, through a desert. By the way, Zarephath was not in Israel. Zarephath was in Phoenicia. Do you guys remember who was from Phoenicia? 
Jezebel. This is enemy territory. God called him into enemy territory during a drought through a desert for a hundred miles. Are you kidding me? Here's what was really cool when I looked up Zarephath of Sidon. These cities are called the smelting pots. Cities back then, towns back then would collect the same kind of tradesmen so they could work together. So you'd have carpenters in this city and you'd have potters and and people that would work with clay in this city. And these cities that God calls them to were known for melting down metals, metallurgy and working with metals. And so they're called the smelting pots. Zarephath is called a place of refinement. That was his name, a place of refinement. If you're not familiar with that term, here's what a goldsmith or a silversmith would do. They would take that metal and they'd put it in a pot and they'd apply heat to the bottom. They'd put fire underneath of it and it would melt down that metal and then as it it heated up it would boil up and the impurities in that would rise up and they scrape the impurities off and then they put more heat and more impurities would boil up and they scrape and every time you boil up the impurities and scrape them off you get a value more valuable uh gold or more valuable silver that's how the carrots change is based on how many times they refine them and you know when you reach the most valuable is when the, the 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 goldsmith or the maker heats it and heats it and scrapes and heats it and refines it and refines it until finally he can see his own reflection. And he says, hey, now it's ready. Now you would say, it's a coincidence that God sent him to Zarephath. He could have sent him anywhere. He sends him on a hundred mile journey to a place of refinement. A place of refinement. There are times where God is going to call you on a journey that it's going to hurt. It's going to feel like he's abandoned you. It's going to feel like he's crushing you. And what you and I do, we often give up at mile marker 98. God, I'm out. It's got too tough. And he's going, no, come on. I didn't do this to make you quit. I didn't do this to crush you, to break you. I did this to make you look more like me. Let me burn off the impurity so that when people get around you, they don't see you. They see Jesus through you. Let me burn off this stuff. And yes, it's painful. Nobody would do it. It's like, oh, this is great. I just love these journeys. These are awesome. This is so much so comfortable. Your faith doesn't grow when it's easy, guys. Your faith grows when you're forced to go, oh, okay, I got to trust. And, and God's saying, listen, as I burn away those impurities, trust me more, trust me more, trust me more. And he gets him to a place called Zarephath. And then there's a widow there waiting for him. After that 100-mile journey of refinement, this is the end of the story. So he went to Zarephath. As he arrived at the gates of the village, he saw a widow gathering sticks, and he asked her, would you please bring me a little cup of wa- a little water in a cup? Man, I can understand that. <clears throat> Long journey. Then he, he adds to it. He says, hey, could you also bring me a little bite to eat? A little bite of bread, too. That, that makes sense. He's been traveling for weeks, probably. Uh, a piece of bread and a cup of water wouldn't be a, a lot to ask. But this lady, man, that's a straw that broke the camel's back. I mean, she goes, I swear by the Lord your God, I don't have a single piece of bread in the house. I mean, she gets mad at him. And it's important that, she, that you notice, he, she says, I swear by your God. She knew he was from Israel. She knew he was a prophet just by the way she, he was dressed. She knew that he believed in this one true God. And that it was that one true God that had brought the famine as a punishment. And so she goes, I swear by your God, I don't have anything to eat. She goes on to tell him, she says, listen, this is all I've got. I got a handful of flour left in a jar and cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. I was just getting a few sticks to cook this last meal so my son and I could die. I mean, you, you guys met Debbie Downers before, right? You're like, hey, uh, you know, good weather today. It's going to rain tomorrow. Okay. Hey, can I have a glass of water? I'm ready to die. I'll ask somebody else. I mean, I'm moving on. Not to make light of it, because this woman is at the end of her rope. 
this woman is struggling. She doesn't have a reason to live. And he looks at her and he hears her complaint. And a man who has been fed by ravens, lived on scraps for three years, walked through the desert a hundred miles. The man or woman that God can do that to can then stand up and look at somebody who's lost all hope and can say, hey, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do just what you said, except for that last meal part, and make a little bread for me first. Go ahead and make me something anyways. And then he says this, you can use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God that I serve, the God of Israel, as you put it, My God, there will always be flour and olive oil left in the containers until the time that the Lord sends rain and the crops grow again. So she did, and apparently his 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 ability to trust that God was going to do that, his his trust that hey God's going to take care of you, inspired her. And it says that she did as Elijah had said, and she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. I love verse sixteen. There was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers just as the Lord had promised through Elijah, just as he had promised. There was always enough. Now, what I want you to see as we close out of Elijah is this. He gets to a place where somebody who's at the end of their rope has nothing left to live for, hears him say, God can do it. I was a youth pastor for several years, as as, uh, Keith may have mentioned, I can't remember, for about 10 years as a youth pastor. and, And one of the things we would do is we'd often take kids to camp. You know, and, 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 and like I was at last week and that was fun. And some of the times after camp, we would take them to an amusement park, like Six Flags. Do you guys have those here? No, you don't like, do you know what an amusement park is? <laughs> These questions are apparently difficult. Roller coasters. Okay. So you do know what they are, but you don't have them. Okay. So we have amusement parks and Six Flags is like the most common one for us. And we take kids to, to play on it. It's funny. You know, and my goal as a youth pastor is I'm in maintenance mode. I'm trying to make sure we don't lose too many kids. I mean, like I'm looking for about a 90% return. I take a hundred kids, bring 90 back. Parents should be happy with that. Um, and so I'm in maintenance mode, but the kids, they're always around like, you want to ride a ride with me? I'm like, uh, Sure, because here's something I learned, and if you work with youth, you'll know this to be true. When you hang around teenagers, if they smell fear on you, you're, you're done. They're like lions on a three-legged zebra. They're, you're toast. You can't have fear. So when they're like, hey, you want to ride this with me? Sure, let's go. They want to take me on a loop-de-loop and then hang me upside down, you know, like, you know, I don't know, a thousand feet above concrete. Like, hey, just look at, look at your coming death. And you're like, oh, okay. Like, this is, that's not fun for me. And we're in line and they put us in a chair and the, the, the junior high girl next to me is like, this isn't going to be fun. And I'm like, oh, they put a lap bar down that does nothing. And then they're like, now buckle your seatbelt. You know, like this like little tiny piece of cloth that they put around your waist. And then I'm like, that works for her. She's 70 pounds soaking wet. I'm 200 pounds. And I don't want to hang upside down with this around my waist. Like, and then the safety protocol is some teenager on their cell phone, probably like they, they like touch it. This one's good. This one's good. They touch it for like, like they like pull on your seatbelt for like half a second. They're like, that's good. That's good. That's good. And then they stand there and they're like, yeah, they're good. Send them off. That wasn't enough for me. That's not enough. I don't believe that. I want to stand at the ride and watch a dude bigger than me get on the ride and then safely get off the ride. And then I'll take his seat. I'm like, that seatbelt can hold some weight. That's what I'm looking for. I'm not going to put my faith in, a, in like, well, oh, it worked for a junior hire. Thank you, not good enough. Now, I say that story to, to, to illustrate this. There are people in your life, on a much more serious note, 
There are people in your life that are looking for some faith to inspire them. They are not looking for you to talk to them and use your words. They want to see that you believe it so that they can believe it. They're not looking for somebody to tell them that it was great. They want to see, hey, you took the ride and you got through it. You walked through this and you trust that God. Maybe I can trust him. I'm not interested in hearing about all the things you think. I want to know what God has done in your life. When your faith can be tested, when God can take you through a time where you're living on scraps and you feel like you're barely making it, when God walks you through a journey of refinement where you lost somebody or you struggled through an illness or you went through a bout of something and you're dealing with this and you're like, you can look back and go, my God got me through it. My God can get you through it. That's a faith that inspires. If your theme for the year is God, give me faith. It needs to be God, give me a faith that inspires, that that moves other people to have faith in you. God never called you to be a bucket. He called you to be a funnel. Let that faith, let him grow you so that it passes on to other people. That's how the world changes. That's how our neighbors come to know Christ. That's how God infuses our family. And we see people who didn't know Jesus, who were turning to everything else. In my backyard, people are putting needles in their arms because they have no hope of anything else. What they need is not somebody to talk at them. They need somebody to go, I've met Jesus. He changed my life. He can change your life. A faith where you believe it and you've walked through it. Don't get upset if it's hard right now. Don't get upset if you're struggling right now. Rock Harbor, listen to me. If God is bringing you through something, it's so he can help you bring somebody else through it. That's what he wants to do. That's what he's got for you. I pray you let him refine you, maybe break you. He breaks me all the time. I'm stubborn and I'm cocky and I'm proud and I have to get refined. But what comes out the other side is hopefully somebody who says, don't look at me, look at what God can do. And that's how people get saved. That's how lives change. And if you're here and you're going, hey, Josh, I don't have that. Maybe you need to make the decision to let God have your life and trust him for the very first time. And if you've already done that, what are you doing with it to help other people find the same thing? Can I pray for you? Would you just bow your heads and let me, let me close? Let me, let me just ask God to bless you. In the quiet of this moment, nobody but you and God knows what's in your heart. Would you just ask him if there's, if there's some kind of application for you today? Maybe you're the person in here who needs faith for the very first time. Maybe the person in the room who's never really trusted God. You've heard about him. You've believed in him, but you've never trusted him. You've never given him your heart. You've never given him access to your life. Would you put your faith in Christ today? Would you do that? Maybe you're the person in the room. You say, Pastor Josh, I've already done that. But you've given up. You bailed out because you didn't think scraps were enough. You bailed out because the journey got so long and so tough. Maybe today you say, God, I'm back in. Refine me. Just help me get through it. Dear God, as we look to you, we know that you are the one who meets all of our needs. God, you can give us a faith, just like Elijah, to stand on a mountaintop and know that you'll come through. To stand in front of somebody who's lost hope, who's ready to give up and say, don't give up. My God can take care of you as well. God, help us. Help us to be those kind of people. If there's somebody here who 
needs to experience that for the first time, would you give them the strength and the courage and the wisdom to embrace you, to chase after you, to not give up? God, would you help each and every person in this room? Everybody under the sound of my voice, would you help us to pursue you, to trust you more, to be the kind of people whose faith points other people to you? God, would you help me and others reach our neighbors on Cape Cod? God, would you use this church and the people in this room to turn Idaho upside down so that their friends, their family members, their co-workers would come to know a real lasting relationship with Jesus. God, would you bless them for their investment? God, they invested and poured into me and they didn't know me. And they invested in people on Cape Cod that they've never met. And God, I pray that you would bless this church because of it. I pray that you would pour out extra blessings on them and help them reach their neighbors, their loved ones. God, we love you for all that you've done and all that you're going to do. And we thank you for loving us. It's in your precious and holy name we pray.